It's Tech Fighter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 275 for January 15th, 2012. This week, first looks at Adobe Lightroom 4, a big free-for-all, warnings about what not to put in your mouth or your computer, the latest on Windows 8, and in short circuits, another warning from a fake PayPal. Want to see a Warner Brothers movie on DVD? Well, you'll have to wait. And the last consumer electronics show with Microsoft. Version 4 of the juggernaut known as Adobe Lightroom is now available to anybody who wants to try it. As usual, Adobe is releasing the beta version publicly to allow the greatest amount of feedback from people who might actually use it. This has, in fact, been Adobe's policy for several versions. I saw a demonstration of Lightroom 4 last month, and the demonstration was provided in accordance with Adobe's non-disclosure agreement. It's been really hard for me to keep quiet about what I saw from then until now, because this version adds a lot to your photographic toolkit. First couple of warnings are in order. Lightroom 4 will be available for Macs, but it will require a 64-bit operating system. For Windows users, both 32 and 64-bit versions will be available, but Windows XP will no longer be supported. Despite Lightroom's easy-to-use interface, there's a lot going on under the hood, and trying to run Lightroom on an underpowered system makes about as much sense as pouring kerosene into your Lamborghini's fuel tank. The public beta, which is available from Adobe's website, and you'll find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website, will install alongside any previous version of Lightroom. There is no option in the beta to upgrade your Lightroom catalog. This is a good decision, and this is why. Because undoubtedly, some users will try Lightroom 4 in beta and, for whatever reason, decide not to upgrade when the full version is released. So the decision not to upgrade any existing catalogs is one that's designed to avoid frustration for those people. You can expect a full review of Lightroom when version 4 has been released, so for now I'll just limit the report primarily to bullet points. To see how the beta works, I created a new catalog and added 2,745 images that I created last year, 2011. I selected Add instead of Copy or Move because I wanted to leave all the existing images and catalogs alone, and I didn't want to duplicate the images on my hard drive. Adding images places them in the catalog, but otherwise does nothing. The interface has several new bits. Obvious immediately are the additions to the module picker. The modules now include library to obtain images from your camera and organize them, develop to crop, color correct, and improve your images, map, which allows you to add geographic data, book, the feature you'll select if you want to create a photo book, slideshow, well, that one's been around for a while and it should be pretty obvious, print, also obvious, and web, where you can create HTML or Flash web presentations. Sharing photographs has clearly received increased emphasis from Adobe, and the opportunities to create printed photographs, whether you make the prints or have them made by an online service, books, currently only one supplier, web pages, and images for email are remarkable. I'll save the demonstration for when the final version is released because the options could change between now and then, and there's no point in demonstrating something that might not be there. This might be a good time to explain Adobe's reasoning in releasing a public beta. They want to know what you think. 
They really do want to know what you think. This is one of the characteristics that I admire most about Adobe. The company is really interested in what its customers and potential customers want an application to do. If you download and try the beta version of Lightroom 4, give feedback to Adobe. Good or bad, they want to hear it. Despite all the touchy-feely sharing stuff, it's the develop module that's the key to Lightroom. This is the module where you can make the image better, or if you do things wrong, make it a lot worse. For this preview, I thought that looking at the develop module would be reasonable. It's less likely to change than some of the other modules. So on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see the image I started with. It's Percy. He's not a terribly bright cat, but he is orange. It's an okay snapshot, but one with a background that's full of distracting elements, and overall the image is, you know, kind of soft. I started by cropping the image and modifying the highlights and shadows. Right there, that improved the image quite a bit. Then I kicked in a strong clarity setting to make him kind of a hard-edged cat. And then, just to see what would happen, I tried backing the clarity off all the way to the extreme left end. Now he's really kind of fuzzy and luminous. Now, which of these is the right way to illustrate this cat? I don't think I can answer that. The right way is the way that looks right to you. In the develop module, instead of fill, version 4 offers a white point and a black point modification. The clarity control works better now than it did in version 3. Noise reduction can be applied locally instead of being limited to the entire image. And white balance can also be applied locally. These are outstanding improvements when you're dealing with an image that has mixed light sources. Adobe also now has lens profiles for more than 350 lenses and a soft proofing feature that more accurately illustrates what your printer will produce. In addition to that, Lightroom 4 improves support for video clips, although not to the point that a lot of users would like. Maybe that comes in version 5. If you're at all serious about photography, I encourage you to download the latest version of Lightroom. I think you'll like what you see. Let's call this next section free-for-all. It'd certainly be great to have enough money to buy a commercial application for every need you have, but that isn't always possible. And sometimes, free applications are just as good as the commercial product. Occasionally, the free application is even better than the one you pay for. This week, let's take a look at some of the applications you can install for free and with a clear conscience. Category Antivirus Avast is the free antivirus application I recommend when the computer user can't afford or doesn't want to pay for Norton Internet Security. Avast has a paid version, but the free version is a robust application that keeps an eye on your website connections, email and IM conversations, and the network overall. You don't get the anti-spam function or a firewall, but the free version has everything else that you need. Windows Vista and Windows 7 users can use Microsoft Security Essentials, that's included with the operating system, and it's free. Category, Firewall. And speaking of firewalls, Komodo has one that's free. It has a bit of a bloatware problem, but it's a competent firewall. Firewalls watch traffic on your network, both inbound and outbound, to make sure that something on your computer isn't sending important information to somebody you don't want to have it. If you have Windows Vista or Windows 7, just use the built-in firewall. But if you're still using XP, you really do need some sort of separate firewall application. Category, Screen Capture. 
TechBiter Worldwide uses Snagit because of its accuracy and versatility. But Duck Capture is a great choice if you don't have the money for Snagit. Duck Capture can grab regions, windows, scrolling windows, or full screens. Once you've captured an image, Duck Capture can save it as a file, print it, send it to the clipboard, open it in a built-in editor, email it, or upload the screenshot to one of several hosting services. Category. Image Editor. Okay, nothing beats Photoshop and Photoshop Elements. Photoshop is king of the hill, and Photoshop Elements is a great way to obtain near Photoshop results on a budget. But if your budget is zero, give Sagelight's Lightbox a try. For a free application, Lightbox includes some surprisingly robust features, including a bokeh effect, tone blending, color and vibrance adjustments, clarity, and the ability to edit in the HSL color space. That's hue, saturation, and luminance. Category, CD and DVD burner. Even if you have an application that can burn CDs and DVDs, you should probably also have the free image burn application. And even if you've never created a CD or a DVD before, you'll probably be able to use Image Burn without even bothering to read the instructions. Category Office Suite Microsoft Office 2010 is the gold standard, and WordPerfect Office is acceptable for those who don't need the features that are available in Microsoft Office. But if you have no budget at all, take a look at LibreOffice, the successor to OpenOffice. The suite includes Writer, a word processor, Calc, which is the equivalent of Excel, Impress, which is like PowerPoint, and Draw. It has no real office equivalent, but it's kind of similar to Corel Draw. And there's also Base. Although Base requires installing MySQL or PostgreSQL, it can work with existing Microsoft Access databases. There is no equivalent in LibreOffice for Microsoft Outlook, though. If you need that, you need Office. Category Email. I have been a big fan of the BAT for years, and for office use, Outlook's ability to share contacts and calendar information is useful. But if you need a basic email program and it must be free, use the Mozilla Project's Thunderbird, which does have minimal contact and calendar management functions, and it also has the ability to read news groups and RSS feeds. Category Web Browsers. Well, they're all free. Microsoft Internet Explorer has improved a lot, but any of the other browsers is probably still a better choice. Firefox has the lead in the add-ons department, but Chrome is catching up. And though Opera can't seem to develop much of a market share on desktop or laptop computers, it is popular on mobile devices. If you must use IE, at least download the most current version that your operating system will support. For XP, that's version 8. For Vista and Windows 7, be sure to download IE9. Category Backup Software Can't afford Norton Ghost? Backup Maker creates backup archives in standard zip format and can write to optical disks and FTP servers. To restore, use Backup Maker or any standard zip application. The application doesn't have the functionality and flexibility of Norton Ghost, but it is more than adequate for basic backups. Category Disk Mirroring if you need to make a disk image instead of a file-by-file -file backup, Paragon Backup and Recovery Free has an excellent reputation. The only way to back up an operating system is with an imaging program. The free disk imaging application is based on Paragon's commercial hard disk management and backup applications. Category File Compression this is one of the times that the free application is actually better than the paid application. 7-Zip is fast and flexible. 
When you need to create zipped archive files, 7-Zip is the right choice. Category Software Updater Most operating systems can update themselves. Some applications check regularly for updates, but overall the landscape is cluttered and confusing. What we need is a single application that catalogs all of your applications and then obtains updates when they're available. I can't find anything like that, but Secunia Personal Software Inspector will help you keep a lot of applications up to date. But it still doesn't know about everything. Don't put that in your mouth. You don't know where it's been. Well, the same thing applies to your computer. If you find something like a thumb drive in your company's parking lot, what would you do with it? Would you pick it up, take it inside, plug it into your computer? A surprising number of people would. It's not clear whether they're being helpful, maybe trying to return something that's been lost, or attempting to exploit someone else's misfortune, looking for data on the drive. Either way, your computer and possibly your entire network could be at risk. But it's not just USB drives. What if you found a CD or a DVD? Research by Lumension, a vulnerability management company, shows that these kinds of devices are perfect vectors for malware. I quote research by the company, as many as one in four malware attacks is carried out through a USB device. In the past year, we've seen Stuxnet raise its ugly head and Cornficker continue to circulate through the USB vector. Recently, the U.S. Army admitted that an infected USB stick was responsible for causing one of the biggest cybersecurity breaches in military history, and the proliferation of USB devices only continues to skyrocket by billions each year. Now, this report doesn't mean that you should trash all of your USB drives, and it certainly doesn't mean your company's IT staff should ban all USB devices, although some short-sighted IT managers do exactly that. The report notes that Cornficker B masquerades as an autorun.inf file on removable drives, so the executable will be launched every time the removable drive is inserted into a system. It combines this with a social engineering attack to trick users into running the autorun program. It's actually a pretty common technique. What's called the silly FDC worm infected army systems in 2008 using exactly that method. Any USB device connected to an infected machine would then become infected itself, and it would infect any other machine it was connected to, and on and on. The Dimension Report says, in 2010, the IT community witnessed how dangerous USB-propagated malware can be when the Stuxnet family of Trojans came to light. Stuxnet was found to be primarily spread by USB devices. Unlike many previous USB worms that depended on the Windows Auto Run feature to allow the virus to load onto the machine, Stuxnet took advantage of a vulnerability in a shortcut file, a link, placed on the infected drive. A user could infect a machine by just browsing the drive in Windows Explorer. The malware took advantage of the operating system's process of loading icons for shortcut files. As soon as the user browsed the USB drive without clicking anything, the computer attempted to render the files. The malware within the fake icon then hijacked the process and initiated the infection. At no point did the user ever need to launch a file, either manually or by allowing Autorun to do it. Well, we can't go back. Portable devices are just so useful. 
A survey in 2010 questioned 230 workers and found that all of them owned at least one USB flash drive, and more than half owned three to six of them. So if we can't go back, at least we can be careful. Lumention suggests several steps that will protect both users and companies. Ensure that common PC and laptop configurations have auto-run features disabled. That limits the efficacy of USB malware that depends on that feature. Require timely installation of security updates to minimize the risk of USB-borne malware that may attempt to take advantage of unpatched endpoint vulnerabilities. Limit access of USB and portable devices to registered devices only, enabling better control over who, when, and how the devices are being used. Prevent initiation of some or all executables from portable devices to block malware from running in the first place. Require strong passwords and don't allow the use of default passwords. Require proper up-to-date AV and firewall usage to prevent malware from gaining a foothold within the endpoint and spreading to other systems throughout the network. In other words, as they used to say on Hill Street Blues, be careful out there. said much about Windows 8 for a while, but development continues to progress, and today seemed like a good time to report briefly on a variety of events that have happened, are happening, or will happen soon. Lenovo and Acer have announced that they will release Windows 8 tablets. This is scheduled for the third quarter of 2012, which is when Windows 8 will be shipping too. So far, that means we'll see tablets from Acer, Dell, Lenovo, and Samsung. Expect others to join between now and mid-year. The Windows update process suffers from some of the same problems as previous versions of Windows, namely, updates fail for no apparent reason and help files don't yet exist, so recovering is problematic unless you have unlimited time to experiment. Previously, when updates failed, the system could at least provide a knowledge base number that would lead the user in a roundabout way to the download. Usually, the manual download and manual installation would fix the problem. That will eventually happen with Windows 8 but the version that's currently in the field is pre-beta, and it's not too surprising that the recovery features aren't there yet. The computer security firm McAfee is warning that rootkits will probably continue to be a security threat for Windows 8 devices. McAfee says that Microsoft has made progress on security, but predicts that some of the primary targets will be mobile devices. Quoting, In the coming year, as developers and researchers develop new methods for rooting phones, we'll see malware authors adapting the lessons of PC malware development to undertake attacks that leverage the mobile hardware layer to a greater extent. PC-based malware is increasingly moving further down the operating system to take greater advantage of hardware. We expect mobile malware to follow the same direction. One of the options for logging on in Windows 8 involves a photo provided by the user and several gestures instead of typing a password. You might, for example, use a picture of your favorite cat, and when the photo is presented, draw a circle around his left ear, poke his nose, and then draw a straight line between his front feet. This is all designed to make starting a tablet computer easier, but security expert Kenneth Weiss is critical of the plan because he says someone could easily observe you from a distance and see your password. I've said previously that 2012 will be the year of the tablet. To succeed, Windows tablets will have to cost less than an equivalent iPad. ZDNet felt that pricing constituted a sufficiently serious question that they designed a survey, and surprise, 
Most people said they wouldn't buy a Windows tablet if it costs more than about $600. About 18% of respondents said they would buy a Windows tablet at more than $600. 7% of it costs more than $800. 3% if it's over 1000 Windows tablets will be competing against the Kindle Fire, 200 bucks, and a variety of Android devices, most in the three dollars to $500 range, and of course the iPad at four dollars to $800. So is it really a surprise that the Windows tablet would have to sell for 600 or less? Microsoft will have a Windows store that comes with Windows 8. It'll sell apps just like Apple and Android. What happens if a bit of malware slips through and is installed on your Windows 8 tablet? In an extreme case, Microsoft can kill the application. Apple and Google have the same functionality. They can kill apps on your iPad or Android device remotely. This is not something someone does just for fun, though. When it happens, the store in question invariably attempts to compensate inconvenienced users by providing gift certificates and such. But if and when it happens, you will not be asked for permission. The bad app will just simply disappear. And maybe you're wondering just how many of us are looking at the Windows 8 developer preview. Well, Microsoft says the package has been downloaded more than 3 million times. The 3 million mark was hit early in December. Microsoft's next test release, the official beta, should be out in February, and the Windows 8 store will be functional in February too, but apparently only with free apps at that time. In short circuits, PayPal once again says my account has a problem. Well, of course, it really wasn't PayPal. And I was more than a little disappointed that Norton Internet Security didn't catch this and spike it. Neither did the anti-spam add-in I use with my email program, Anti-Spam Sniper, and Spam Assassin didn't catch it either. When something makes it through that many defenses, it concerns me because it's the kind of fraudulent message that will fool a lot of people, despite the large number of red flags all over the message. Let's take a look at it. On the TechBatter Worldwide website, you'll see an image of the message I received. I counted, very quickly, at least five clear indications that the message is fraudulent. Take a look at the message and then scroll down to see if you can catch them too. The fake warning came with an attachment, a zipped version of what was claimed to be a PDF document. That raises three questions right away. Why zip a PDF document? Why not direct me to a website for the information I need? And why call it a form when your message says it's instructions? So here's what I saw in the message itself. The scammer spelled the service PayPal, all lowercase. Don't you think that PayPal would spell its own name right and capitalize both of the P's? My name was not included at the top of the message or anywhere. PayPal will always address its users by the exact name that the user used when they registered. The message calls for me to allow Microsoft's ActiveX, which is one of the most prolific vectors for malware, to perform the data transfer securely. Now here's one that's just a little more obscure. One of the sentences in the message ended with two periods. Messages from large companies such as PayPal are reviewed by both the company's legal department and the marketing department before they're ever approved for transmission to users. Do you really think that both of those departments would miss two periods at the end of a sentence? And later in the message, there was a comma that should have been followed by a space, and the space was missing. Again, do you really think the legal and marketing departments would both miss that? But you might ask about that link at the bottom of the message. What about messagelabs.com? 
Doesn't that prove the message is legitimate? Well, in a word, no. In three words, no, it doesn't. I can provide a link to whitehouse.gov right on my TechBiter Worldwide website, and I did, but that doesn't mean that I'm on the White House staff or that this message was approved by anyone at the White House. Links prove nothing. Warner Brothers will soon announce that its latest DVD releases won't be made available to rental outlets until nearly two months after the discs can be bought in stores and at websites. Take that, Netflix. There's already a 28-day delay on DVD rentals from Warner Brothers, and other movie studios have similar agreements. The movie studios are trying to protect their profits. Sales of DVD and Blu-ray discs are down, and consumers are able to rent one-time views from Netflix. Netflix has agreed to Warner Brothers' demands for a 56-day delay because that's the only way it can assure the ability to buy discs at a discount. Redbox may not agree to the delay, and the company says it still expects to receive movies 28 days after their release. A report in the San Jose Mercury News says that Netflix is just keeping its DVD-by-mail service on life support and leaving it up to each customer to decide when to pull the plug. Meanwhile, says the Mercury News, the company is pouring most of its money and energy into building up its service that delivers movies, TV shows, and a growing amount of original programming to TVs and other devices with high-speed internet connections. The Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas is a lot like the old PC Expo in New York City, only larger, a lot larger. It's not just computers. CES is video and audio. It's robots. It's anything electronic that a consumer anywhere might even consider buying. It's the perfect forum for a company such as Microsoft. Or maybe not. In an era when Apple has abandoned Macworld, it probably should be no surprise that this is Microsoft's last year at CES. Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer made his final keynote presentation at CES, summarizing the company's progress with Windows Phones, Windows 8, and Xbox. Microsoft has sold 66 million Xbox 360s and 18 million Kinect sensors, according to Ballmer. The company has 40 million Xbox Live subscribers. Microsoft says it will no longer participate in CES because the CES schedule doesn't fit Microsoft's production schedule. And you know what? That might actually be the truth. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.